Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we will meet a puzzle master from Cedar Rapids who has been challenging newspaper readers from around the world with his wuzzles and cryptoquotes since the 1980s. But first, Lee Michaels wrote her first novel when she was in high school. She wrote and burned a total of six novels before she turned 30. But when she wrote the seventh, she decided it was time to look for a publisher. She's written and published more than 100 books since then, mostly romance, but also nonfiction and local history. More than 35 million copies of her books are in print worldwide. And she has also taught and inspired thousands of other writers through classes and mentorship. She built this literary empire from her home in Ottumwa, Iowa, and she is here with me now. Lee, welcome. Thank you, Charity. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it is wonderful to have you here. And I want to go back to that girl in high school who just couldn't stop writing. When did you fall in love with romance novels? It was about that time. I fell in love with happy endings, actually. And so whatever I would have written would have had happy endings, whether it was mystery where everything is resolved or if it was romance. But that was about the time that I really fell in love with romance. At the time I wrote my first book, uh, everything I knew about love would have fit on a post-it note. But well, you sure. know how that goes. <laughs> I do. I was also a teenager once. Do you remember some of the books that, that really made you think, oh, I really want to be a writer like this? Absolutely. And as I would read those books, then I would carry on the stories afterwards. Fan fiction. Exactly. And I would say, oh, I wish it had gone this way instead. I, I read Gone with the Wind, you know, in, in that era and cried for the whole weekend until I figured out my own sequel and my own happy ending. Oh, funny. So that first novel, you were writing it at school. You even made the local or the, the school newspaper because somebody asked you what you were doing? Somebody asked me what I was doing with this stenographer's notebook that I was carrying around and paying so much attention to. And I was totally startled. And so I told the truth. I said, I'm writing a novel. And that ended up in the school newspaper. Did you ever let anyone read that novel? No. <laughs> that was the first one that got burned. It was so terribly derivative. And it also, I hadn't learned about research. And some of the action in that that novel uh, revolved around June 31st. Think about it. <laughs> so when you decided to go to college, you went to Drake University I and did. you studied journalism. journalism. Mm -hmm. So had you put away for a while the idea of being a novelist? I always wanted to make my living writing. And I was realistic enough to know that that was going to be chancy to try to do it with writing fiction. So I decided to go into journalism, figuring that newspapers would always be a secure <laughs> career, which, well, that turned out not to be. But a little bit like June 31st. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, it, it was a wonderful way to learn to write. And as a matter of fact, one of my first editors told me that my prose was very easy to translate because it was very crisp and clear. And I think that was because of journalistic writing. Interesting. Very interesting. So you trained to become a journalist. You were an excellent student, all kinds of accolades, but a journalism career just wasn't in the cards for you. 
Well, I went back. Uh, I had been in Ottumwa to do an internship at the newspaper there. And I went back to get married. And uh, my husband worked at the newspaper. And so they wouldn't hire me at the newspaper because of that um, that conflict. So I worked in radio for a while, actually. Wow. And then I worked at the library. I worked in public relations. I did various other things and and then kept writing through that time. And I had sold my fourth book and decided that if I could write faster, that I could make a living as a writer. And so I quit the day job. I want to go back to that first book that you sold because there were six novels that you wrote and then destroyed because you didn't want anybody to see them. Obviously, you were building your writing muscles during that time, but it's still... I mean, what did that feel like to burn one of your books? It was almost a relief because there was no longer a temptation to try to fiddle with those words and make them work. I was free to take the idea and do something new with it. And everything that was good about those six books stayed in my head. In fact, one of the great lines from one of those stories did not actually appear until I think it was book number 49 or 50. Wow. And I used it. So, you know, I don't feel that I lost anything by burning those. I just gave up the idea of trying to edit them. That seventh novel, what was different? What made you think, okay, maybe this is time to start looking for a publisher? I think I had just learned as much as I could on my own, and I knew that. And when I sent that book in, I really did not even hope for a yes. I hoped for a no, but here's why that would help me then in future efforts. And instead, what I got back was I, I, it collided. that book collided with the perfect editor for it. And she wrote me back a two-page letter that said, well, we think if you can do this and this and this with some very positive and very concrete suggestions. And I did that. And then they went to contract on that book. And that was published by Harlequin Romances. It so was Harlequin Romances. It was Romance. your first book to be published. And they're the leading romance publishers in the world. Yes, Wow. Wow. (laughs) I had sent it to Harlequin because I figured I could always work my way down the ladder. Nice. And that also came at a a pivotal moment in your life. Uh, Rochelle Chase, one of your students, but uh, friends, and also she wrote a beautiful piece about you in the Des Moines Register. And she wrote about that time. Yes. You, uh, your husband was struggling with alcoholism. So Mm -hmm. as a family, you were really at a crossroads. We indeed were. I had said that you know, I was just about to leave, and if something didn't change with the drinking, and I was going to go back to school and go after my master's in English. And so the day that we actually did the intervention on him, he was in the hospital, and, and we did the intervention, and I said, you know, this is it. Either you do something about the drinking, or I'm, I am going back to school, and I will leave to do that. And I went home, and um, the mailman dropped off a package on the porch, and it was my book coming back from Mills and Boone, the Harlequin office in in England. I had sent it to Toronto to the head office, and it came back from this publisher I'd never heard of with this letter that said, yes, we think if you can do this, that we like your work, and we think we can publish. What an incredible moment, and your Mm -hmm. husband was able to stop drinking, and you did stay together, so there was a a beautiful... uh, 
resolution <laughs> to Absolutely. that as well. But publishing that first book, I mean, you were still working at the library at the I time, was. right? Mm-hmm. And just publishing a book, as so many authors have learned, does not a living make. So, so tell me again, how many books did you write before you thought, you know what, maybe I can make a living this way? I had written four. I'd sold the fourth book. And I had a chance to meet with my editor, and I just gave her that question. What, what can I expect in terms of income here, long run? And she told me, and I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go home and quit my job. <laughs> so from that point forward, you wrote four books a year? For the first 10 or 12 years that I was with Harlequin, I wrote four books a year. What does that break down like? Is, I mean, how much time did you have to spend writing? to? Have, that's an incredible output. How, how did you do it, Lee? <laughs> well, I would pour my second cup of coffee in the morning and I would go to my office. And I would work until noon. And then my husband and I would go out for lunch because that was one way to keep control over the the time management. And then when I came back, I'd go back to work until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. In the evenings, I'd often do research or I'd answer fan mail or, or that sort of business things and on the weekends. But I would write a book in about six to eight weeks. I would take a short break from it, and then I would revise. And then many times I would send the book off, and the next day I would start the next book. Wow. Now, Harlequin Romances, um, they, they publish a lot of books. Mm-hmm. There's, there's yes. a large volume there. So when you were publishing these romance novels at that time, did you also do publicity for them? Not a great deal because especially in that era, traditional publishers were, were more apt to promote the author. And Harlequin had a policy, uh, and still does on their series romance, that they promote the series rather than the author, but they would put a great deal of advertising uh, oomph behind those books, behind the whole series. Right. Well, and um, people who read and read Harlequin romances were devoted and are devoted (laughs) to reading those books. So once you find an audience... There were subscription services, and and they would buy all of the books. What did you hear from readers? Oh, readers are wonderful. Readers are so much fun. And I think that was the best publicity, by the way, that I ever did, was answering every single fan letter. Um, There was a time that, that the editors in Brazil put my address into the books, And I started getting fan mail in Portuguese. And so I had to have my bio and my basic letter translated saying she does not speak Portuguese, but, you know, here's here's the basics. But I still answered all those letters. Uh, There was a reader in New Hampshire who, who got my book at the library, wrote me a fan letter. And so I sent back my newsletter, which had a recipe in it and, you know, the the little bling and that sort of thing. And she was so excited that she took this all to the library, the librarian pulled all my books off the shelf, made a display, baked the cookies from the recipe, and had a tea party in my honor. I've never been in New Hampshire, but I've had book events there. Oh, that's so wonderful. And you were you were spinning these stories from your home in Ottumwa, Iowa. Where did you get your ideas? Ideas can come from anywhere, and often it's just it starts with a basic problem, 
And sometimes as much as, you know, just a little tiny bit in a newspaper. One of my books started because I, I ran across a snippet in a newspaper that said that there was this attorney somewhere up in Wisconsin that was being disbarred because they found that he had been filing his divorce client's paperwork in the Dominican Republic instead of in Wisconsin. And his clients were finding out years after the fact that they were not divorced. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a story. Right. There's a hook for a romance novel. Exactly. For sure. The the book is called Maybe Married. (laughs) We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Lee Michaels. She has written and published more than 100 books, mostly romance novels, but also nonfiction and local history. She also teaches and mentors many other writers and lives in Ottumwa, Iowa. You can find out more about her at leemichaels.com. And we'll be back in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we will meet the puzzle master behind Wuzzles and Cryptoquotes. He is 88 years old now and still making puzzles. With me right now is Lee Michaels. She is the author of more than 100 books, mostly romance novels, but also nonfiction and local history books. She has more than 35 million copies of her books in print worldwide. She's also taught and inspired thousands of other writers through classes and mentorship. She lives in Ottumwa, Iowa. And Lee, I have to ask, so you have written all of these romance novels, and we know that people buy, read, love romance novels, but this is a genre that doesn't get a lot of respect. Has that been frustrating for you? It has. Women's fiction as a rule doesn't get a lot of respect. And and romance, a lot of people have the image of romance that it's all the same book. You just change the names of the, you know, of the characters and change the eye color and, and go from there. And because all of the books have this very basic structure, and they all have a happy ending. People sometimes think that they are um, that they're all the same. They the often romance is a small book. It's shorter than many other novels. It's got a lighter approach to life, and so they think that that it's just froth and that there's nothing nothing different about it. But romance is very intense, and it's a great way. For young people, I've had I've had letters from from teenage readers who say, after I read your books, I I know there's a man out there that's right for me, and I don't have to take the first one that comes along. Now that's something that I really like promoting. Yeah, that's definitely a a lesson worth sharing. So when people belittle this genre, I mean, what do you tell them? What do you why read romance? Oh, wonderful question. Um, what I tell them usually is, you know, who's your? I, I often ask, who's your favorite author? And they will tell me, and frequently it is a romance author. They just don't realize it. Or someone who got a start as a romance author. 
And, and, I, and I point that out, that mysteries are also formulaic and very much alike in that they all have these certain elements in common. And does that make all mysteries alike? Of course not. And the same is true for romances. They're not all alike just because they have a basic structure. So you wrote about 80 books for Harlequin. Harlequin. Mm-hmm. And then you felt like you needed a change. Tell me uh, about that. I definitely felt like I needed a change. I was burning out a bit. And instead of boy meets girl, boy wants girl, boy gets girl, I was starting to think more about, you know, boy kills girl. And and I thought, you know, it's really time for a break. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> So when I went back to to writing after that, um, I changed just about everything I could. I went from short books to long ones. I went from contemporary to historical. And I went from uh, sweet to, um, shall we say, sassy and, and sophisticated. And so now I write historical romance set in the British Regency period, which is 1810 to 1820. And I thoroughly enjoy doing that in terms of romantic comedy, because the society of the time was a little wacky, and it's fun to look at the the enjoyment of making or avoiding the right marriage. So when you were looking for that next adventure, for that next challenge, I mean, when, when you mentioned murder, I mean, did you try mysteries? Did you give that a go? I've tried mysteries. <clears throat> One of my mysteries, I never could figure out who did it. So that was not going to be a successful book. No, maybe more realistic than than many mysteries. But so how did you settle on this Regency era? I've always loved reading Regency romance. It was one of the first things um, that I that I did read in the, in terms of of romance novels was Georgette Hare and all of her her books. She was pretty much the originator of the modern Regency romance format. And uh, so I had been doing research on the Regency period from the time that I was starting to write anything. And I had tried writing Regency with minimal success. And I was challenged by uh, Rochelle Chase, as a matter of fact, my friend and student who, who said, I think you should try this. And, and so I did. And I kept shooting her pages and she kept saying, I want more of this. I want more of this. And that was how that first book came together. I was doing it for fun for myself. How from being based in Ottumwa, Iowa, how have you done research on Regency England so that you can write it convincingly? Well, I spent one summer in England. That was very, very productive. And I've been several times. And then there's just a lot of really good information out there. There were a lot of diaries of the period. There were a lot of, there's a lot of um, biographies of the period. And that's a really good way to learn the language, the way that people talked, the way that they thought. That, gosh, that sounds so incredibly challenging. Now, I, I realize that a modern English author writing the Regency era, you know, era would have a lot of the same challenges, except they grew up in a culture that evolved from that, and you didn't. And I didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, what are some of the challenges for you? One of the big ones for any historical author is maintaining uh, a balance between what that character would have thought to what we see as acceptable today in attitudes, in, in uh, outlooks on in even you know, political correctness, all that sort of thing. And one of, the, one of the biggest challenges is that we talk lightly today 
about psych- psychological matters all the time. And they wouldn't have done that then. It creeps into our language unless we really watch out for it. Interesting. Are there mistakes that you made in the first few books? <laughs> can, can you spot things now that you're like, oh, I, I wouldn't do that again? I was fortunate that I was very careful and I had good editors. And so that I don't think there's anything in there that's terrible. Um, but, you know, they do creep in pretty easily. So how is the the culture of writing these historical romance novels, how is that different from writing those Harlequin romances? Well, I tend to write one book a year now. It seems like a very reasonable yeah, goal. Yeah, very reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> and trying to be semi-retired, that's not working out well. But um, so I'm, I'm working slower and I'm doing a lot more um, research and reading and thinking about. But in a way, my characters are still very middle class. Um, even even if they have titles and, and such, they, they still come across as very down-to-earth and practical and and democratic. So <laughs> what, what are a couple recent titles? The most recent is called Their Makeshift Marriage. <clears throat> and it actually is, um, it truly is middle class characters who get caught up in the high society of the time. Uh, he is a solicitor, and she is the illegitimate daughter of an earl. And their um, their marriage of convenience that is supposed to solve all their problems ends up causing a whole lot more. <laughs> I think I think I may have uh, run into that set up a time or two myself. Um, so I'm talking with Lee Michael. She is the author of more than 100 books, mostly romance novels, also nonfiction and local history. Lee, I want to talk about teaching because um, in addition to writing and being a really prolific writer, you also turned your attention to teaching back in the 90s. What made you want to start teaching? I wanted to give back. When I first started, I would have given anything for somebody to mentor me and, and help me figure out what is a good submissions package because the one I sent in was pretty awful. And you know, to have someone that could, I could just bounce ideas off of to, brown, to brainstorm. And so the opportunity came up to offer a romance writing seminar through Iowa Summer Writing Festival at the university. And I grabbed that, and I considered it my my summer vacation to come to Iowa City and teach for a week or two, which the organizers of the festival thought was a little weird. But it was so different for me that it was a vacation. And then I turned to, to online classes, and I teach for Gotham Writers Workshop out of New York City. It's a uh, bricks-and-mortar writing school that offer, also offers online and Zoom classes. So thinking back, I mean— Obviously, there are ways to learn how to write, a few famous ways to learn how to write here in the state of Iowa. And you were thinking about going back to graduate school and studying English at Drake University. Um, but for a romance author, there just wasn't there wasn't a way to find a mentor? Or there to learn? wasn't at that time. It was before uh, Romance Writers of America was organized. And so there just really wasn't – now there are chapters everywhere. There, there are a lot of writing seminars and that sort of thing that are just were not around or available to me, at least at the time, in, in rural Iowa. What did you like about teaching? I loved the interaction with students. And that first class of 12 students at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival – 
three of them went on to traditional publication. Wow. Mm-hmm. That that um, must have been a very different kind of energy. It's like being a grandma because I didn't have to do any of the work to get this baby here, but boy, can I brag. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds a lot easier than it probably is (laughs) to teach. And and so, I mean, beyond teaching, you have also really taken on this mentor role, this coach role, which is a much more intense relationship. Tell me about that. It is. I I work one-on-one with a limited number of people and help them uh, work through their ideas and brainstorm. Uh, I'm pretty good at talking people off ledges and generally pretty good about uh, helping them see what the possibilities are in their story. And rather than making it into a story I would have written, to, to look at their story and how can it be better. That sounds, again, like a, just a different use of your energy and talent, a, mm-hmm. a different muscle. Exactly. Do you sleep? <laughs> Once in a while, yes. <laughs> no, I'm serious about that, though. I'm, we, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Our, our next guest that we'll be talking to, a puzzle master, uh, is a short sleeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he only needed three or four hours a night in his prime. Do you have more hours in your day, Lee, than most of us do? No, but okay. if I did have, I could have written eight books a year. <laughs> so you have also, uh, as a teacher, you've written books for other writers, yes. nonfiction. But you've also turned your attention to local history. Tell me about that. My husband was a photographer for, for decades and also was a collector of historic images. So he had this massive collection of uh, specifically southeast Iowa, the towns and the people and all that sort of thing. And that collection is now at the University of Iowa Libraries. But we started figuring out how to use this and how to share this collection. And as publish-on-demand books came along, then it became practical to do highly illustrated local history projects. And the last one, those that I did, came out last Christmas, and it's called At Home in Atumwa. So it's the grand houses of the city and the houses with stories behind them. Did you know that Richard Bach wrote... Jonathan Livingston Seagull while living in Ottumwa, Iowa. I did not know that. He did. And the house is right around the corner from mine. So there is that story and the picture of the house in that in that book. It was a great deal of fun to do that, that and project. And you've also been uh, teaching other people how to do that as well, right? I have, yes. I have a small publishing company that specializes in uh, niche market local history, nonfiction, and so there are various people who want to write that kind of book, and I facilitate getting them out. It's one of those fascinating areas. I mean, there, there's been such evolution in publishing, and, and some of it good mm-hmm. and some of it not so good. But that's one of those things that it wouldn't have been possible, at least not possible, to get something published in a really nice-looking book 30 years ago. Exactly. Now, and 30 years ago, you had to go to a printer and order a 1,000 copies in order to make it feasible to do that per copy costs. And now, once the book is put together, you can order them one at a time, 
people can order them off Amazon. They're produced and shipped directly. And it is an entirely different kind of of world. Now you can you can make something worthwhile to do even if it's only going to sell 50 copies or 100 copies. So Lee, we've talked about all of these different things that you do. You mentioned trying to be semi-retired. I think you're not doing a great job at that. Um, but is there do you have a compulsion to to write, to work, to create? I do. There has to be something going on if I'm if I'm not writing, I'm editing or I'm advising or you know, I have to be doing something in order to otherwise I'm just bored and I don't like myself very well when I'm bored. Do you find a lot of time to just read? I do still find a lot of time to read and that's very important. And that's that led to my Substack presence which is called the Snarky Editor. Um, the Snarky Editor goes looking for things in published books, only published books are fair game. But the errors and the and the misused words and the sometimes just absolutely hysterical errors that crop up in published books. What do you like to read? I read uh, romance. I read cozy mystery. I read. I still read a lot of nonfiction um, history and and uh, research material. So it's pretty much anything goes. With uh, the romance genre, there's been quite a shift in recent years. I mean, I know that you would argue that there's always been an element of feminism to romance. Um, that's much mo- more overt, I think, in yes. modern romance. Are you a fan <clears throat> of modern romance? I am a fan of modern romance. And it's gone so, it's expanded so much from the days when I was starting. When, um, you know, my editor told me a story about having lunch at the Ritz with one of her authors, and the author said, all right, now tell me how much sex can I have? And all the waiters crowded around to hear the answer. Well, you know, now the answer is, huh? Why are you even asking? (laughs) So, you know, we talked earlier about how romance is a genre that doesn't get a lot of respect. I mean, Lee, you have garnered a lot of respect, and all of your papers are in the Iowa Women's Archives, and and people— people have have come to realize what you have accomplished in this career that is not over yet but do you do you feel like there is a new level of respect for what you do i think there's there's increased respect yes as somebody makes a career and you know it it, it is one of the few fields that a writer can actually make a living writing rather than also uh, teaching or, or doing other things. So I think as people realize that, there's more respect for the genre. Do you have, in 30 seconds, uh, your best piece of advice for aspiring writers? Write a lot and read critically. Read not to run a book down, but to see how the author did it. And those are the two things. You only learn to write by writing. And you can become a snarky editor later after exactly. you after you've published ninety books. Right? Exactly, <laughs> Lee Michaels. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Lee Michaels has written and published more than one hundred books, mostly romance novels, also nonfiction and local history. She's got more than thirty-five million copies of her books in print worldwide, and she's also a teacher and a mentor to thousands of writers through the years. She lives in Ottumwa, Iowa, and you can find out more about her work at LeeMichaels.com. Coming up in just a moment, we'll meet a puzzle master from Cedar Rapids. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? 
In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. A lot of people around the world have an ongoing relationship with Tom Ecker of Cedar Rapids, but they probably don't know it. Ecker is the creator of a couple of addictive little word puzzles that are syndicated worldwide. Wuzzles and Cryptoquote originated and still appear in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Wuzzles has been going strong since 1982. Ecker publishes under the pen name Tom Underwood, and even though he is now 88 years old, he is still creating puzzles. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And I have learned that this is not your first time on the radio. In fact, you're an old radio pro from way back, right? Way back. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, well, this goes way back to the 1950s, I think. Yeah, I was on, on radio. I had my own radio show when I was a sophomore in high school, 1951, I think it was. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it was a comedy show. Although I'm sure it wasn't all that funny. <laughs> Just seems so now. Right. But it's a long time ago. Right. And that was in Waverly, In Iowa? Waverly at Wartburg College. Wow. And you have had, I mean, radio's not the only thing you've done. You've had a very long and varied career. Um, you were a longtime athletic director for the Cedar Rapids Community Schools, an international lecturer on progressive interval training, the coach of the Swedish national track and field team. I mean, it sounds like I'm making this stuff up. You are. Not. You're making it up. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you've, you've done a whole lot of stuff. When did you first become interested in puzzles? It was in 1970, and I was... Uh, in my office in Cedar Rapids, and my secretary came in with a sheet of puzzles that she wanted me to try to solve. And uh, I thought they were kind of easy. And they were the first of what we now call wuzzles. All right. So they were, these are called rebus puzzles. Well, rebus is the actual name, technical name mm -hmm. for this kind of puzzle. But uh, there are all kinds of names. But rebus is the one that really tells the story the best. All right. And and how does it tell the story? Explain this kind of puzzle to me. Okay. it's There's a missing concept in every puzzle. And the concepts are in, on, over, under, and so forth. There are over 500 of those. Mm -hmm. And then once you've got that, then you have a combination of words. And if you look at the words and you can imagine over or under or something it fits, then that solves your rebus. All right. So I have a perfect example here because I've got one of your books, More of the Best of Wuzzles, in front of me. And it's got one on it, and it's got the word basic written backwards twice. So I'm guessing that's back to basics. It is. Okay. Yeah, well done. I've been practicing. <laughs> I've been practicing well my done. wuzzles. So – you just whipped through these puzzles that your secretary handed you. This was something that had been making the rounds at the building. But clearly, it didn't stop there. That really ignited your imagination. Well, then I decided I would create my own. 
And uh, when I got up to two or three hundred, I thought, okay, now I'm ready to do something big. And uh, it didn't didn't work. What what big thing did you have in mind? Well, I was going to try to get a book mm-hmm. or uh, get them syndicated. And uh, of course, later they were syndicated, but at that time, I had no idea. But that was 1970 when all that started, and it wasn't until 82 that I finally got them into print. Into the Cedar Rapids Gazette. But you obviously didn't give up. No. (laughs) It sounds like these things kind of took over your brain. Well, uh, yeah, what little brain there is, yeah, that's, that's right. So you had really created thousands of puzzles by the time you managed to get them printed in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. How did that happen? Um, I went to the managing editor of the Gazette, and uh, I had pretty well exhausted every opportunity I had to get these puzzles accepted somewhere. And I said to the managing editor, if you'll run these for a couple weeks, I'll provide them free of charge just to see what happens. And he said that he would do that. <laughs> like so, something free. Yeah. <laughs> so so for two weeks they ran, and then when the two weeks were up, I decided it was time to find out how, how we did. And I tried to call him and couldn't get through the switchboard because the lines were all tied up with people complaining because they were missing the wuzzles that day. Wow. The first day in two weeks that they hadn't seen them. And so, so they were an instant hit. They were. After 12 years of trying. <laughs> they were. The um, how how do you come up with these? Because you've been doing this for a very very long time now, and what you do three puzzles on Sunday and two puzzles all of the other days of the week. Yes, total of fifteen a week, uh, seven hundred and eighty a year. Okay, that's a lot of these puzzles. How do you get these ideas? Well, I went through several dictionaries, standard dictionaries, and then. Dictionaries of uh, idioms. Okay. And uh, then I just kept writing them down, and there were lots of them. So when you get struck by an idea, are you ever in a place where you can't get it written down? If I'm in the car, yeah, then I have to ask Carol to write it down for me. It's your wife. <laughs> so she's used to it. <laughs> she knows when, when, uh, when the time has come to write something down. Or I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea. And sometimes in the morning I'll say, oh, that was a wonderful idea or that was a terrible idea. Right. Yeah, those middle of the night you ideas never know. are not always as good as you think they are no, in that's the moment. True. Do you scribble them down on napkins and receipts and yes. anything you can find? Yes, and uh, uh, bar tabs. Yeah. Yep, if I happen to be in a bar at the time. It's true. Is that a, a particularly creative location for you in a bar? It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so once you come up with the idea and, and you figure out a way to make it work in your format inside the, the rectangle or using the rectangle because sometimes the words go on the outside of the rectangle. Sometimes they do. Um, do you test them before you send them in to be published? No. I just figure that's good enough for me. It's good enough for the world. <laughs> All right. So I let it go. And Wuzzles, are, that's not the only puzzle you've created. We also see your name on the Crypta quote. Yes. When did you start doing that? 
I think the cryptocodes started about the same time as the Wuzzles were syndicated. Okay. So it's they've been in print a long time. And uh, they're very popular. I'm always amazed that I get all kinds of comments on the crypto quotes. Tell me how the crypto quote works. It's just a simple little uh, puzzle using the name Tom Underwood. They, the name is coded at the top, and then you just break the code by using the same letters that are in the name Tom Underwood uh, in the puzzle, and eventually it comes out to be the. Right. Quotation. You have to do a little bit of guessing, a little bit of filling in the blanks with your with your brain. Yeah. <laughs> but it's similar to the kinds of coded messages we'd send each other when we were kids. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Tom Underwood is not your name. No. I mentioned your name is Tom Ecker. Where did the name Tom Underwood come from? Well, I was working for a superintendent at that time who didn't like people moonlighting. And since I figured this was a form of moonlighting, that I couldn't allow my name to be used, so I used I picked on the name Tom Underwood. The reason was that Tom I could remember, sure, because it's my real name. <laughs> and then Underwood I thought was a puzzle in itself, so it's Tom Underwood. Right, and you sign it in the puzzle, in the wuzzle, as in the um, it's a wuzzle in and of itself. Um. You have been quoted as saying that you like the crypto quote even better than you like wuzzles. Is that true? They're easier for me, to, for me to create, for one thing. Second, I think the public likes them better. Really? Yeah, I think so. So with the crypto quote, you have to decide what quotation you're going to use, and then you turn it into a code, where do you get the quotations? I have over 500 quotation books. 500 quotation yes, books? over 500. Wow. And uh, sometimes they don't work. I, I'll make what it, makes them not work? If they're too long mm. or if uh, I can't use uh, anything with a Z in it because there are no Zs in the puzzle that you can figure out. And so if a name, uh, if the person's name has a Z in it, the chances are pretty good that that won't work. Right. And there are other letters, too, that won't work. So you have to be, I have to work them all myself before I let them go. Do you have to like the quote to use it? No. Sometimes I hate the quote. Really? Oh, yeah. So I've got them from Hitler. Oh. I've got them from... A lot of places in the past that are people that I don't admire at all, but they said something that I thought was pretty good, so we use it. Interesting. And you think people like them more. Why do you think that? Oh, I just get more mail from the CryptoQuote than I do from, from Wuzzles. Interesting. Yeah. When you syndicated Wuzzles and then you later syndicated CryptoQuote, with Wuzzles, at least, you wrote into the contract that Wuzzles would be provided to the Cedar Rapids Gazette at no charge. Why did you decide to do that? I just thought that they'd been so nice to me over the years, and they'd given me so many breaks that I had to do something for the newspapers, so that's what I did. It's also insurance that they won't drop it, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. 
when did you reveal your true identity? You're a pretty well-known guy in Cedar Rapids. When did you let people know that Tom Underwood was actually Tom Ecker? When uh, the superintendent resigned. And when he quit, I went to my friends at the Gazette and I said, okay, if you want, you can go ahead and let it, let it be known now. And they did a big headline that said, who is Tom Underwood? The answer will surprise you. That was the headline. Nice. And then uh, they did a whole piece then on that. Now, you've had a, a long and fruitful relationship with the Gazette in a number of ways. You also covered the Olympic Games for the Gazette? Yes. I did a postcard from the Olympics. They're, they're like the cards you'd write if you were attending the Games and decided that you want to communicate with a friend. Okay. And that's what these are. They're little vignettes. How did you manage to get that gig? That's a pretty amazing opportunity. You mean to go to the Olympics? Yeah, and to send these postcards back to the Gazette. That's pretty fantastic. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, it's. Uh, I didn't think it was that spectacular. <laughs> so you are someone, you've, you've done all of these different things, um, and, you know, you were a longtime athletic director um, with the Cedar Rapids School. So you had your you had your day job. But it's pretty clear that you need to keep busy with other things. And I've read that you don't sleep very much. No, I, at that time, I didn't. How much? Oh, I was, I was going, uh, I was sleeping maybe three or four hours a night. But uh, I tell people now I I get in three or four hours before midnight. <laughs> well, um, I'm 48, and I get in three or four hours before midnight, Tom. So <laughs> you're you're not alone in that. But so you were you were just always a short sleeper. You had a lot more hours in the day than the rest of oh, us. Oh yes, yes. I always blamed that. Uh, I said it's easy to be productive when you're awake. I read a newspaper every day, but I had shifted my newspaper reading to digital reading before the pandemic. And then the pandemic led me back to, to reading on paper and it led me back to doing crosswords and, and puzzles too. Do you ever worry that with people spending more and more time on their phones and computers that the day of the, the newspaper puzzle might be coming to a close? I asked my editor that, my editor in New York, and mm -hmm. I said, what's going to happen? Because we've got newspapers that are folding all over the country and and people are not renewing their subscriptions. And he said, puzzles will always survive. He said, when everything else is gone, there will always be printed puzzles. So I, I just took him at his word and continued on. Well, we've had a few puzzles that have been big crazes like Wordle from the New York Times. It wasn't originally from the New York Times, but these are, are digital puzzles. Have you thought about taking Wuzzles digital? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't know where to begin. Right, right. Well, if you were still only sleeping three or four hours a night, I bet you'd get it done. Probably. <laughs> so how long do you think you'll be making puzzles for people? Until I croak, that's what I tell people. Well, thank goodness for us. Yeah, it isn't yet. Right. You keep at it for a long time. Do you ever get writer's block? Do you ever get to moments where you just can't come up with puzzles for days on end? 
Hasn't happened. Has not happened yet. No. Do you know if you've repeated puzzles? I try not to. I really try not to. But uh, I'm sure sometimes I do repeat them or at least change the pronoun maybe in in the answer. But generally, I try not to repeat. Now, you weren't a puzzle guy before that day in 1970 when your secretary handed you a sheet of puzzles. Are there puzzles that you do now that are not your puzzles? No, not really. No. No. I just can't imagine doing anything that productive. <laughs> I don't believe you. So you get I've I've got a I we've got these sheets of wuzzles, but I also have um just a thank you note from a Wuzzle fan. Do you hear from a lot of people who tell you how much they love your Wuzzles? Yes, I do. I hear from quite a few. All over the world, too. Yes. It could be India. It could be, of course, Canada is an easy one. There right. are several newspapers in Canada that use Wuzzles. But uh, United Arab Emirates. Emirates. I think I'm in two papers there. Wow. Wow. Well, and I guess if uh if the if you use American slang or something like that and it's a little bit harder, it just increases the difficulty of the puzzle, makes it even more challenging, huh? See, now that's I uh, hadn't really considered that, but that's a good reason to keep going. That's right. You need to hire me to be your publicist. Yes. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for your puzzles and thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.